the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Well, thank you kindly, and good afternoon. Welcome. Good to have you with us for this Tuesday, January 16th edition of Lifeline. Just a skosh past 5 o'clock on your Tuesday ride home. Going to be a bit of a damp evening, so be careful out there on the roadways. Sounds like a bit of a a respite for the balance of the week weather-wise, and then the next bit big double punch comes this Saturday and Sunday. So if you've got plans for the weekend, maybe try to do all the outdoor activities on uh, Wednesday and Thursday. Hey, And wherever you might be headed on this Tuesday, we are going to keep you entertained and address some issues as we uh, typically attempt to do on this program that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Our first guest tonight, a conversation really that sort of is a continuation of a visit we had a number of months ago. And let me sort of set the scene for first by asking an important question, a question that I believe all of us as Christians need to grapple with, and that is simply this. Does the church have a future in our generation? Let me quote from someone here saying that, and I quote, I believe the church is in real danger. We're facing present pressures and a present and future manipulation, which will be so overwhelming in the days to come that they will make the battles of the last 40 years look like child's play. Close quote. Now, while that quote could have been written yesterday, it in fact goes back some 54 years ago, written by one Francis Schaeffer Sr. Schaefer speaks to the loss of truth and personal responsibility, the collapse of authority, the growing threat of violence, warning against impeding ecological disaster and scientific manipulation, even with the possibility of nations developing and weaponizing a deadly virus. This outside of the pages of his book, The Church at the End of the 20th Century. Back in 1970, when Schaefer wrote this book, he argued that the United States, not just continental Europe, was already post-Christian, indicating that the reality of historic Christianity becoming a minority in the West, stripped of its cultural power and influence, a situation in which Schaefer identifies a great danger for believers, evangelicals in specific, taking sides with political elites in order to remain in comfort, affluence, and personal peace. Starting to get a little too close to home? He continues, in the face of societal chaos and upheaval, Schaefer doesn't want Christians to compromise for the sake of short-lived comfort, and goes on to predict the inevitable loss of freedoms that will come once the Christian foundations of Western society have finally crumbled. And in response, Schaefer calls for a kind of culture war, though not the sort of battles we might be imagining. Schaefer wants a Christian revolution, the kind that looks like spiritual reformation. And as we uh, dive a little bit deeper into this conversation, and Schaefer is certainly credited with describing our culture today as postmodern society, most modern era, more specifically, Schaefer coining the phrase the post-Christian era. But is that necessarily true? Well, in a conversation some months ago with my guest tonight, um, he intonated the notion that we are not, in fact, post-Christian, but rather pre-Christian. It'll take a little time to unpack all of this, so be patient as we dive into a conversation with Pastor Alan Coleman, Senior Pastor of Bay Hills Church of Richmond. And Pastor Coleman, great to have you back on again. Thank you, Craig. I appreciate your ministry so much. What a pleasure to be here. We had a fascinating conversation on a recent edition of Church in the Week, talking a bit about your background, your ministry, what God is doing, not only in San Francisco Bay Area, but uh, 
but across the globe. And uh, part of that dialogue pivoted toward the notion that the Bay Area is a different place. And by that, I mean, we have a ever-changing demographic. In many respects, you walk out the front door and what you see in most communities across the San Francisco Bay region um, looks like a microcosm of the entire world. That, in fact, this is probably one of the few places on the planet where virtually every tongue from every tribe of every people group from every continent and every nation has some significant degree of representation here. Whether you're talking about Central and South America, parts of Asia, Southeast Asia, Europe, you name it, it's all right here. And what further fascinated me about our discussion in in talking about the erosion of the church and the influence of the church in the West, much like what Francis Schaeffer spoke to back in the early 1970s, that, that while many sort of have therefore viewed the glass as sort of half empty with, with a negative viewpoint that we've lost position, we've lost influence, we've lost power, therefore we're losing the battle, all of this is just indicative of the end times, failing to recognize that while Scripture does indeed prophesy a great falling away, it also speaks to a great harvest. That part of the dynamic somehow within conversations in the church, in the West in general and in the United States in specific, seems to be largely missing from the dialogue. And replacing that sense of let's go out and win the world for Christ seems to be a drive and an energy to try to obtain a position of influence, cultural influence, through political power. As opposed to seeing a true reformation, a change of hearts and a change of minds, which is not, of course, initiated by political influence, but rather by an encounter with Jesus Christ. Yeah, I mean, there's there's I think there's some reasons for that. So, for example, some time ago, one of the largest studies ever done about the American church in crisis, uh, which was about 300 church, 300,000 churches were surveyed in this study. And they were trying to figure out what is the epicenter of post-church America. Uh, and so what they discovered in that study, and it was summarized in a book called The American Church in Crisis, it's called The American Church Research Project, is that uh, the rest of the country trends towards the West Coast in terms of ideology, thinking, and culture and morality. Then California, as it moves in concentrically, influences the West Coast. And then uh, Northern California influences the state. And then in Chapter 3 of that book that summarizes this study, what they surmised, what they discovered is that Bay Area, California, is the epicenter in our country for post-church thinking, so meaning someplace in Biloxi, Mississippi, 50 years from now, will be more like the Bay Area uh, as a result of that, that the Bay Area tends to take its cues from places like Western Europe, so it, it, it jumps the pond, so to speak, comes in at the Bay Area as its port of entry, thinking, culture, ideology, and then moves into the rest of the nation from there. So because we feel the leading edge of all of that change, what, what I noticed when I came into the Bay Area 20 years ago is that pastors, leaders, well-meaning ones, notoriously, infamously are despondent about doing ministry here in the Bay Area because they feel the, the leading edge of all of that. And so then what happens is is we tend to adopt this mindset as Christians and as leaders, like just, just hold the line. Like just put your head down and, and hold the line. Uh, and uh, and I, I just don't think that that's where we are anymore. And I think a lot of the newest data supports that. It was fascinating about that observation is that, that certainly while that is true in terms of a spiritual dynamic and, and what's going on within the church, it, it also tends to be true at so many levels in terms of culture, music, Certainly technology. Absolutely. You know, I think if you were to talk to the the average um, inventor, venture capitalist, IT uh, thought leader in Silicon Valley, they would say, look, most of the most significant technological advances and trends that have impacted the entire planet 
have started here not only on the West Coast, but specifically in the San Francisco Bay Area. And back to my observation, glass half full, glass half empty, um, we have tended, I think, to look at some of these trends and say, well, here's what's negative about this, here's what's negative about that, and therefore hunker down, mm-hmm. try to maintain our, our position, so to speak, yeah. you know, dig the trench deep and hope that we can survive instead of saying, well, wait a minute. If the San Francisco Bay region in Northern California has such a reputation for being such tremendous trendsetters in so many regards from a sometimes positive viewpoint, from a technological standpoint, oftentimes negative influence from a moral and spiritual standpoint, more cultural standpoint, why not flip that on its head and say, if we can be such a tremendous influence for the negative, why can't the opposite be true and be a tremendous influence for the positive? And, and you said something to me in, in our conversation about uh, Schaefer, not, not specifically talking about Schaefer, but my observation about you know his remark of, of we being in the post-Christian era. And you said, no, no, I don't see it that way at all. I see us as being in the pre-Christian era. And that absolutely set me back on my heels. And I thought, you know what? I don't know that I've ever heard a pastor of any pulpit size from a national position or a local position quite put it in those terms. Most, I would think, that argue the hunker-down position. Let's try to just maintain where we're at and pray to God we don't see any further erosion as opposed to saying, look, what an incredible opportunity we have. The mission field used to be learn another culture, learn another language, raise a bunch of money, get yourself a passport, take your family, move overseas, dwell amongst them for two, three, four years, get a chance to know them better, slowly start reaching people for Christ, hopefully gain enough traction to plant a church and have some spiritual influence on another culture somewhere far away. And today, you don't need a passport. You don't need to learn another language. In fact, all you really need to do oftentimes is just open the front door. And literally the entire world sits here at our feet. But for some reason, we're seeing this glass as half empty as opposed to half full. Well, it's precisely what brought me to the Bay Area. Look, postmodern thinking, post-church thinking came about at the back half of the 1960s, which was onset by the sexual revolution. Mm -hmm. Now, how long are we going to stay stuck in that idea? So uh, the millennials are inheritance of that disposition brought on by Gen X and the boomers largely. So, for example, Barna just put out a study which said that 47% of Christian, now that's the operative word there, Christian, people who think Jesus is the most important thing, 47% of Christian millennials said that feel that it is wrong to share their personal belief about Jesus with other people. Wow. Okay? So so that means they believe that the most important thing in the world is Jesus, but because of what we have exported to them, what we've passed down to them in terms of thinking, is this position that uh, it's wrong for me to share any of that. Now, let me, let me just share with you some of the actual data, the reality. So, Lifeway, for example put out another study that says this 66% of Americans non-Christian Americans are open to talking to someone, anyone meaningfully about their faith. So that's two out of three people in this country that are not offended by the idea of talking to someone that they know that's meaningful about their faith. 52% are willing to talk about it with a stranger. What we found is that COVID made people more interested in spiritual things, not less interested. 25% of these people are very interested, meaning one in four people are out there hungry to talk about spiritual things, and, and half of them willing to do so with a stranger. Gen Z is the most eager and hungry generation to come along in three generations uh, who are willing to talk about abstract truth, not subjective abstract truth, objective, concrete, linear ideas. So at what point do we say, 
uh, we're on the pre-church side of this. Well, what are the conditions for pre-church? Well, pre-church, the way that I would define it is this. This generation has not heard the real gospel ever. They've... In other words, they didn't grow up in the church. They didn't grow. Up, they haven't been around the church. The gospel's not been in popular culture. They've heard of the idea of the gospel, rumors of the gospel, inferences to the gospel, reinterpretations of the gospel. But it's the first generation that has not had regular exposure to the actual gospel itself. And this, I would imagine, would be true of not only people that are native-born, but those as well who are um, immigrants. And it's interesting because you make reference to the 1960s. I recall back in the movement of atheism, Madeline Murray O'Hare, her fight before the Supreme Court to remove Bible study from the public classroom, certainly prayer from the classroom, kind of seen as sort of one of the initial sort of tipping points of the inertia that that brought about this this wholesale rejection of truth. And all of a sudden, we've now seen this huge paradigm shift from a large swath of individuals who have been exposed to the truth, heard about the gospel, yeah. maybe even attended church for a time as a child, and yet have outright rejected it juxtaposed against where we are today where there's an overwhelming number of people who say, I've never rejected it because I've never heard it. Yeah, I know I'm supposed to reject it, but I've never actually heard the gospel front to back. And what the data is telling us is that we've bought into this myth and lie that nobody wants to talk about these things. Keep your personal opinions to yourself. And what the preponderance of data is telling us is that it's not true. This last Sunday I just shared with my church that Pew Research still finds that overwhelmingly in this country, 80% of people are almost certain that there is a God and that almost 80% of people in this country still think that religion plays a meaningful part in society today. So I can't seem to find the data that supports the narrative that hope is lost, that people don't want to hear about this. It seems the tide is turning, so why not with this generation, particularly in this place, the Bay Area, which has such national implications and national influence, if that was to happen? Somebody sent me a, a couple different articles this last year. The Atlantic just published, The Atlantic now, just published an article that said, American Christianity is due for a revival. Wow. Let's pause on that point. If you've just joined us, Pastor Alan Coleman with us tonight in studio. He's senior pastor of Bay Hills Church of Richmond. Maybe one of the missing equations here is how will they hear unless there be a preacher? All that and more as our dialogue continues here on the Tuesday edition of Lifeline from KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And our conversation continues. Pastor Alan Coleman with us tonight in studio, senior pastor of Bay Hills Church of Richmond. Information, by the way, available on the web at bayhills.net. That's bayhills.net. We are talking about the question of Francis Schaeffer's observation, coining the phrase the post-Christian era. And certainly if we look at what's going on within culture, society, even the church today, many of us have drawn the conclusion that we're in a post-Christian period. But is it enough to leave it there? And, you know, you mentioned about George Barna, one of the studies that he came out with a number of years ago, and this, this made headlines across the country. It was even reprinted by uh, Newsweek magazine that found that the San Francisco Bay region, and more specifically Marin County, not to pick on our friends in Marin, but Marin County, of all areas across the country, had some of the lowest per capita church-attended in the nation, 4%. People look at that and say, wow, only 4% of those folks in Marin go to church. What a shame that is. I'm just going to stay out of Marin County. <laughs> Instead of looking at it and saying, wait a minute, 96% of people residing just on the other side of the Golden Gate Bridge don't go to church. 
What a glorious opportunity. Let's go up there and be a light of the gospel. Let's share the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's do everything we can because that means if there's a hundred houses on the block, my goodness, there's a good chance that 96 of them don't go to church regularly. Yeah. But we didn't take that approach, did we? No. I mean, I did 13 years in Marin County before I moved to the East Bay at a church there. And I can tell you that the numbers now are closer to two and a half percent. So it's on par with an unreached people group. And I'm not saying we shouldn't export our money internationally to unreached people groups all over the world. That's a good, right, and wonderful thing. But I think we forget that right in our own backyard, right over the bridge, I mean, we have we have sex and pop and populous areas that are right on par with some of those unreached people groups. Uh, uh, and uh, Marin County was actually the epicenter that was cited by that study I originally brought up. Um, if you can have an impact in Marin County, for example, or the you know Bay Area generally. My goodness, um, the kind of impact that you could have nationally would be remarkable. When we talk about Gen Xers, Gen Zers, there's often a, a sort of the almost dismissal attitude by my generation, the baby boomers, that looks at them and says, well, they're not really interested in going to church or organized religion, and so therefore they've kind of concluded that the the claims of Christ are are invalid for their own lives. But is that necessarily true? I mean, that there is perhaps a wholesale rejection of organized religion, the listeners can't see me doing my air quotes here, is probably true, and I would wonder if that's necessarily more the fault of organized religion than it is of of the people in the pews. But at the end of the day, does it necessarily suggest that therefore there is no sense of of spiritual longing, spiritual hunger, if we're all created in a fashion in which God wishes to have fellowship, relationship with all of his creation, if the gospel, as we understand it, of Christ dying for all mankind, that none should perish. So if it says to me that God hasn't changed his opinion on in all of this or his desire to be in fellowship with his creation, then why do we somehow believe that 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 God-shaped hole in each and every one of us has somehow disappeared, that we try to fill it with false teachings, false beliefs, with drugs, with other religions, whatever it might be. We know certainly that's true, but it doesn't change the fact that satisfaction, deep, meaningful, eternal, lasting satisfaction only comes from a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So if that fundamentally hasn't changed, maybe the problem is our approach of how we deliver and share that message has maybe failed or changed. Yeah, I, I, you know, we could spend all day talking about that. I have lots of thoughts about that, Uh, you know. I I think the big shift that needs to reoccur in the church in the Bay Area right now uh, is this spirit of fear that has perpetuated a generation. So even if you're clumsy about it, even if you're if you're not exactly sure how to do it, the willingness to engage relationally with your neighbor, with your server, uh, with your coworker, uh, in appropriate ways about your faith, it ha- has almost been lost for a generation. Because you know the millennials were so. Uh, suspect of organized institution and so suspect of any kind of concrete truth thinking that we 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 gave up for a generation well but that's not who gen z is gen z still carries with them this latent distrust of organizations but they don't carry the same distrust of truth. They grow tired of the previous generation's rejection of truth, and it's a free-for-all, believe whatever you want to believe, think whatever you want to think. If you talk to Gen Z and you look at the data that surrounds them, they're like, no, 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 we, we, we want to know what is absolute truth. Everything can't be true. And we're just looking for someone to be willing to start the discussion about it. Because if they can make a meaningful relationship discussion, then they're will uh, connection, then they're willing to overcome that and return to the organized institution that is the church because of the relationship. Whereas with the boomers, it was flipped. 
they had no problem with coming into the large organization that was the church. They were more suspect of personal relationships. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think, too, largely a lot of the boomers, we, we followed the example of our parents who went to church on Sunday, dropped a couple of dimes inside of the offering plate, and we did that faithfully because that's what mom and dad did. We were more involved in an organization than we were in having a true personal relationship. And I I think that's, that's, that's witnessed to or testified to by even our approach to evangelism, that for the longest time, there have been many in the church that see this as sort of a, it's like paying taxes. I don't feel comfortable comfortable with this. I know I ought to do it, but that isn't my thing. Can you be somebody's friend? My faith is just yeah. a very private thing, and, and, and so we've kind of shied away from it because it's almost taken on sort of a, a works feeling to it. That's right. And I would put that, paint that picture juxtaposed against the picture that we see in the first century church and in the book of Acts, where it wasn't that the apostles and the disciples went out to share <clears throat> because they felt Jesus had put a gun to their head, but rather they knew him. And because they knew him and lived with him, saw the miracles, saw the power of his resurrection, shared with him in the fellowship of his sufferings, went, wow, this is a message that I am compelled to go out and share. It's like a fire deep inside of me. I want that every man should know. So let's go out into the highways and byways and compel them to come in. I think maybe what's notable, notably different about the first century church versus where we've been, and that is that we act as if this is not something that we get to do, but rather something we have to do, like paying taxes, and so we go about it grudgingly. And is it any wonder, then, that people would reject our message when it's being done not out of love, not out of compassion, not of, out of, of sincere, relational-centric motivation, but rather out of a sense of some abiding obligation that if I don't do this, I'm not going to make it to heaven. Like, if I don't pay my taxes, I'm not going to remain out of jail. Yeah, if you I, what that reminded me of is at the, at the um, right in the middle part of chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews, it, it, it talks about the faithful in there where mm-hmm. it says that they died in faith never having seen what God promised them. They did not receive what was promised. So, the, so to a degree, there were some things that they didn't see manifest in front of them. So we read verses like that. We go, listen, I, I'm... Th- the reason this feels works-based is because there is a loss of hopefulness in me that something will actually change. We're on one trajectory. I see it. It's clear. That's the narrative. And, and this... And I can't override that trajectory. But just 12 verses earlier in the opening verse of that same chapter, it's, it's, it says faith shows the reality of we hope for. So the orientation of those early Christians was just faithfulness. But their disposition was hopefulness, meaning they lived every day believing that they were going to see the promise manifest in front of them. So what I take away from that is, is, okay, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe if I live every day totally hopeful that revival can bust out at any minute with my neighbor or in the Bay Area, maybe I'm wrong. But I'd rather live that way than living every day thinking I'm right and nothing will change. Is it also a bit of a, how should we say, an accusation to suggest that part of the motivation of that that wonderful hall of faith in in the book of Hebrews, and, and as we see demonstrated by the lives of the apostles, that they were not only hopeful, but there was also a vibrant living relationship there that compelled them, that drove them. Yeah. Maybe part of the, the indictment here against the church um, in, in the um, post-Christian, pre-Christian era is the fact that we have largely led a life of cultural Christianity, hearkening back to, well, we go because that's what mom and dad did. We were trained to raise our kids that way. And then our kids looked at us and said, 
You go to church on Sunday, you live like the devil Monday through Saturday. I see no demonstration of Christian love, no demonstration of, of the joy of the Spirit, no demonstration of a true, vibrant relationship with a very living God himself. So therefore, you're just going through the paces. This is like belonging to a country club, nothing more. I don't want anything to do with it. Yeah. Maybe part of the problem here is because we've not lived out a vibrant, true, deep profound, satisfying, personal relationship with Jesus as he wants to have with us, that others around us have seen that and said, look, you're, you're just as hollow as anybody else. Your faith and the, the ability to believe is no more powerful than going to a you know an Anthony Robbins success motivation seminar. It's yeah. just a bunch of mumbo jumbo. Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, you know, the historical word for that cultural Christianity is Christendom. It's the it's the idea that uh, Christianity is widely accepted within the culture. Um, and uh, and so there was no. So Christendom died roughly 20 years ago. Uh, and while Christendom was intact. It was kind of an easy believism. There was no real pressure or turning up the heat. You would you would go to school or you would go to work, and people would you would tell them you were a Christian, and they'd be like, "Hey, that's a good thing. Hey, that's a right thing. That's a fantastic thing." But the church has historically been sifted, purified, and accelerated by persecution. And so, when Christendom ended, right, wrong, or indifferent, I see that as a good thing, because what that has done is that it has sifted accelerated, purified the faith of the gospel again here in the United States, rather than either marrying it to nationalism uh, or, or allowing people to sit comfortably. You can no longer really sit comfortably as a Christian in the Bay Area and be public about that. If you're going to be public about it, uh, it means that you're going to have to depend on things like the Holy Spirit. If you're going to be public about it, you're going to have to have a rational, compelling, winsome defense of your faith. Uh, if you're going to be public about it, uh, you're going to have to be prepared to be ostracized uh, or, or, or persecuted in some way. Um, and uh, and that has always been good for the church historically, uh, and it has always been the conditions in which revival has occurred. I was going to say, if you think about the, the, the atmosphere in which the first century church exploded under the pressure of Rome and literally... In, in, in periods of the church's history, having to to live underground because of persecution. It's when we're the most desperate for the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. Or, or you look at countries today, unlike ours, I mean, take communist China, not big fan of their politics, one iota. But the gospel's exploding the there. The gospel is absolutely exploding, and it's exploding in an environment that is absent of... of true, unabridged biblical preaching and teaching from the pulpits of China. There's no Christian radio there. There are no Christian bookstores. There's no distribution of Bibles. There are no Billy Graham events. None of that exists. And yet in the face of extreme persecution, where there to this day people that are rounded up and put into jail in re-education camps for three years at a time... Because they name Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, yes. and yet look at the explosion of the church. Thousands coming to Christ every single day, absent of what we would consider in the West, all the necessities, all the trappings of what Christianity needs in order to succeed. Of course, you have to have the ability to have a big public forum where you can you know, have folks walk down the old sawdust trail and make a profession in front of the pulpit. None of that exists there, and yet the church is literally exploding and and not just there even in places with deeper hotbeds in in parts of the Middle East where to profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior can likely going get you on. killed there's a, my friend he's a he's a leader with the global training network and he, he he's working underground with church leaders in places like Iran because the gospel is absolutely exploding there as well right now and I, I think what you're bringing up Craig is so fascinating and so important because I think part of the problem with American Christianity is that we think that our problems are unique or new so like even the letter that you wrote you, re, you read from Schaefer 
Solomon said nothing new under the sun. That's right. Now, he, he didn't mean like an iPhone. He meant that there are cycles of thinking and culture that just always recycle their way back into our field of view. Uh, and so, like, the, the, the problems, we think the problems that we have, like, for example, with sexuality right now, are new. No, those occurred in ancient Rome. The same exact problems that we're having now occurred then. We think this political divisiveness that we're experiencing now is new. And so we're like, no, 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 that's that's a, a brand new obstacle. No, it, it, anybody who was alive during Vietnam understood what it's like to have a politically charged arena uh, to have to exist in. Uh, all those protests, all of what was going on with our country at that time, the sexual revolution, it was very complicated at that time. Um, none of it is new that is under the sun. And, and we tend to buy into this idea that these challenges in this place are new and therefore insurmountable. And so we just need to hold tight as the as the culture goes you know, in a handbasket. And it's fascinating because as we come back to Scripture again and again and again, it focuses on one key central theme when we talk about the Great Commission, the Great Commandment, and that is be disciples and be a maker of disciples. And that, for me, is probably one of the biggest missing components of the church today. We will talk about getting people signed up to vote. We'll get them out to rallies. We'll try to persuade them politically to see our viewpoint. Go after our guy. We'll do all of that. And yet the notion of not becoming cultural Christians, not getting people to join our club, but to be a disciple and to be a maker of disciples seems to be something that, for the moment, largely is eluding most of the church. Well, it's a great point, and it begs the question, what do you actually think is the hope of the world? So now we're back to hope again. Pause on that point, because I want to take a time out. I don't want to interrupt that thought. If you just joined us, Pastor Alan Coleman with us tonight in studio. He, of course, is senior pastor at Bay Hills Church of Richmond. If you'd like to get more information about his ministry, check him out online at bayhills.net. That's bayhills.net. We'll come back to more of our conversation. So what is the formula? for true discipleship. We'll get to that part as our conversation continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, undoubtedly some radios clicking off across the Bay Area, but hopefully many of you leaning closer into your radio as we are dialoguing today in studio with Pastor Alan Coleman, Senior Pastor at Bay Hills Church of Richmond on the web at bayhills.net, bayhills.net. This is sort of the continuation of a conversation we had um, quite a number of weeks ago related to where the church is today and, and where we're at sort of in the timeline, and I know that many like to uh, to dive into eschatology and uh, pre-trib, post-trib, middle-trib, and where all that falls uh, on the timeline of living together, uh, living today, rather. I, I can certainly tell you this. Um, we're a day closer to Christ's return today than we were yesterday, yeah. and while it might be fascinating to try and divine the exact date or time or, or precise set of circumstances, that's probably probably as fruitful as trying to figure out who's going to win the next race at Santa Anita. Christ calls us to occupy until he returns. Like and a thief in the night. You bet. And that that occupancy really means living out our lives and honoring him. And we were talking off the air, Pastor Coleman, about the the current political atmosphere in our nation today and yeah. that tremendous sense of divisiveness. And oftentimes we want to talk about our guy, our party, our issue, or multiple issues. Um, but oftentimes that conversation ends up focusing all the, all the symptoms instead of getting down to the root cause. And if you want to really get down to the root cause, Scripture is quite clear. Man's separation from God because of our sin nature, both the inherited uh, Adamic sin nature as well as just, you know, making the mistakes and, and living like devils out there, right? And that the, the, the cure for what ails mankind and our society is regeneration of the heart through a encounter with Jesus Christ. And yet back to my question before the break uh, 
a few minutes ago, and that is, but yet how will they hear unless there be a preacher? Meaning, if we're not focused on living out our lives, being that that beacon, and not putting our light underneath the, you know, sticking it underneath the bed or the bushel basket so nobody can see it, but rather living out our life in such a fashion that people look at us and say, there's something unique about you, there's something different about you, there's something compelling about your life. What is it that makes, makes you different? And then you're able to reply with an answer that doesn't go to the what, but rather to the who. Be ready to give an explanation for the hope that is within you. And yet so much of the church today doesn't understand what it means to be a disciple or make disciples, and instead we're focused on gathering signatures on petitions to go out and get our guy, our gal elected to office because we somehow think the right person in Sacramento, Washington, D.C., City Hall, whatever, is going to make a change in our nation. So the way that I like to say it is, is everyone is an evangelist. Everyone is. doesn't matter whether you're an atheist, agnostic, Muslim, Christian. Everyone's an evangelist. In other words, everyone believes something will bring about flourishing. So uh, it's not a matter of if you're an evangelist. It's what are you evangelizing. And what that reveals about you is where you put your hope in. Bingo. And so if you think that, like the zealots did in Jesus' day, that if we can get everyone to just vote the right way, then that's where you're going to spend most of your energy because you think that that's the hope of the world is to get your guy in office. And if we can just get everyone to vote like us, then we can bring about uh, uh, heaven on earth. Um, if If your hope is in... Uh, making a name for yourself, making money, building wealth, that's what you're going to evangelize on your Facebook page, on your Instagram page. You're going to talk about how to be wealthy or healthy or whatnot. And so uh, part of what this is kind of exposing us is after we've come through a long season in the Bay Area of feeling like the gospel has been losing, is we've abandoned hope in the gospel to bring about the flourishing that it promises mm. and we have supplanted that even as believers with more tangible visceral forms of hope more, more a shortcut a counterfeit we're looking for the end result the byproduct of hope yeah. and think that somehow we can sort of magically massage and manipulate and 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 force that into being through a variety of actions when we're failing to recognize that all of that prosperity and peacefulness and living together in harmony is a byproduct of the hope that lies within. Yeah. You know, you want to address crime in downtown Oakland? I'm all for it. Let's get on it. Yeah. But recognize that absent addressing the heart issue, yeah. all you're going to do is put a Band-Aid on it or kick the can down the road or line people up. You, can, in, you in cannot legislate morality. Exactly. You cannot legislate morality. You never have been able to, never will be able to. Uh, and uh, and so one of the reasons that I keep saying is that the conditions are right for revival. And people hear me use that word, and it's a turbocharged word right now. And they think I mean a tent revival or a worship service that lasts 10 days. And I just mean revival in the historical sense, which is a season of accelerated and renewed commitment, growth, uh, and mission within the context of a local church in a specific place. And and for me, that's the Bay Area. Uh, And one of the reasons I say that the conditions are ripe for revival is what we've just been talking about. People have exhausted their hope in a political system. They have exhausted their hope in a particular moral framework. It has done nothing to make us better or more united as a people that I think people are have a general awareness that that is a futile enterprise, which positions the church at this point in history uh, uniquely to bring people together. The Bible says that the gospel removed the dividing wall of hostility. Our whole country is a dividing wall of hostility. So the church can be, ought to be, must be a hopeful place that brings people together where they're saying, hey, I have 
political opinions or ideological opinions, but it's not the hope of the world. Jesus is the hope of the world. And so we can lay down those agendas for what truly and really brings joy and flourishing, which is Jesus alone. And if we hunger for righteousness and morality and right doing by each other, right doing before our children and our grandchildren, that all comes back full circle to the changed heart that leads to a changed life that leads to changed behavior. You know, Scripture talks about it, and I don't want to get down the rabbit hole of, of eschatology here, but Scripture <laughs> talks about in the in the latter days not only a great falling away, but also a great harvest. Yeah. And it also talks, of course, about tremendous accountability and that accountability, that judgment in a Second Chronicles 7.14 fashion, beginning in the very house of the Lord. And while we oftentimes hear, oh, yes, yeah, great falling away. Oh, I see it happening all around me. We, if I, I think, fail to recognize that God is queuing up also a great harvest. Yeah, I mean, the, like in the, in the historical sense of the biblical narrative, our culture has been descending, so to speak, since Genesis 3. Okay? Not not since 2020. No, since the beginning. But since yeah. Genesis 3. And since Genesis 3, which is the fall of man, there have been all kinds of movements uh, of, of revival and harvest by the Holy Spirit and according to the sovereignty of God. So, for example, um, the entire nation of Israel was invaded by the Babylonians. Um, the, uh, many of them were taken to Babylon and held in captivity for 70 years. Okay? Now, uh, their home was ransacked. Their place of worship was destroyed. Uh, in captivity... Uh, they were mourning, and I'm sure they were thinking, culture is has gone to heck, uh, there's no hope. Uh, and so then God raises up unique voices at every low point in Israel's history, like Daniel, uh, to encourage his people, like we need today. We need encouraging voices today, right? Uh, and then uh, Persia comes in, uh, 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 invades Babylon, Israel can go home and they begin rebuilding and that story picks up in the book of Nehemiah and between Daniel and Nehemiah when they see the condition of their place in Psalm 85 there's this verse it says won't you revive us again O Lord so we can rejoice in you and and that's just been our story, our testimony since Genesis 3, which is, yes, the culture is descending, but it has always been incumbent upon God's people to bring, to pull a foretaste of heaven down into our culture. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Why does he want us to pray that? So that we can get a foretaste of the ultimate kingdom to come. So yes, the culture has been steadily descending since Genesis 3, but in there are micro-revivals, micro-awakenings, micro-harvests that we are called to bring about so that the perishing world around us can get a foretaste of what the kingdom of God might be like. We saw that certainly in, in more recent times at Azusa Street. Oh, we gosh. saw it, I think, with the, the product of the Jesus movement of the 1970s, where whole swaths of young here in the people, Bay Area, right here in the Bay Area, uh, that great new film on on the impact of, uh, of of Chuck Smith and just getting out there and saying, hey, you know what? Let's t if we can't get them into the churches, let's go bring it out to where they are. Right? Hey, you were saying something earlier. I, I think you should repeat it, which is, you know, uh, we were musing on why we think those kinds of movies are doing so much uh, that they're they're doing so well today's day and age they shouldn't be it defies logic and reason it defies the narrative it, and you had a good take on why you think well, those it, things are doing it, so well it, it defies the narrative and and yet it goes to the heart of that that inherent hunger that I believe each and every one of us have. I mean, you know, for God so loved the world, it all comes back. You know, we, we think it has to do with the, the, the order of the service and, and, and how loud the organ.
organ plays and all of the the trappings of of doing church look like? I mean, the chosen is a global phenomenon right now. Absolutely. But it really comes down to not doing church, but rather being the church. And in the dynamic of the personal relationship with Jesus Christ that I think a lot of young people have seen the the shallowness, the hollowness of the way baby boomers have lived and what they've seen in in, in organized religion. And and again, I don't want people to walk away saying, he's against my denomination. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that young people are looking for something real. Substance. They want substance. They want to leave their mark. We oftentimes wonder to ourselves, well, look at all of the people that are involved in Save the Forest, Save the Whales, things of this sort. It's all paganism. No, it's the definition of young people wanting to leave the place a little bit better than they found it or to which it was handed over to them. And I think that if we will just recognize that there is indeed this deep, innate desire for real truth, for real religion, so to speak, for for pure relationship with the very creator of the universe. And everyone, I believe, has that that God-shaped missing hole inside of them. And once we introduce them to Jesus Christ and they see what a real, true, pure, vibrant, living, growing, breathing relationship with us with the very creator of the universe himself, we will see this change. And I think that what you're seeing demonstrated by people flocking to these kinds of films or willing to engage in this kind of very raw, vulnerable conversation is a a desire, a hunger, a thirst a longing to try to have that connection with God. Yeah, yeah. James says that pure religion, undefiled religion, that I think that they're hungering for and that everyone has hungered for, uh, cares for widows and orphans, and then resists letting the world corrupt you. Mm-hmm. So it's this both and. It's this willingness to, in, to, for, to put like this willingness to care for others in meaningful ways, particularly those who are the most vulnerable. When if if Gen Z sees us doing that, really loving and caring about the world around us, but then yet at the same time not losing our convictions to do so, not being willing to surrender our convictions, so it's both and not either or. Okay. I think what we will see is a generational awakening that has been unprecedented uh, in the last three or four. I'm going to do something that's going to get me in trouble with the other room. <laughs> the minute I said that, Miles looked over. I'm going to keep you for one more segment. Okay. Because I want to put a big bow about all of this. And I think we've got a lot of folks on the edge of their seats saying, okay, I get what you guys are saying. I'm in agreement. How do I get on board? How do we begin to initiate this change? How do we how do we develop that sense of inertia that can get in there and drive this through true change, true revival? We're going to talk about that next. So bear with us. We're going to take you right through the top of the hour, come back to more of our conversation. Pastor Alan Coleman with us today in studio, senior pastor at Bay Hills Church of Richmond. Information again available on the web at bayhills.net. That's bayhills.net. Back after this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, driving a bit of a monkey wrench into the middle of our, our scheduling here tonight, but we're going to make it all work out, and uh, we're going to get to our next guest momentarily. But meanwhile, I wanted to spend a few more minutes with Pastor Alan Coleman from Bay Hills Church to kind of um, summarize all of this. And, you know, this is the kind of content that I believe Pastor needs to be talked about in every single Sunday school classroom and preach from every single pulpit in America week after week after week, because we have, I think, indeed um, uh, forgotten about our first love. Mm. We have become mesmerized with 
doing church as opposed to being church. We have fooled ourselves into believing, and I said this off the air a moment ago, if the person behind the counter at the local you know, big department store didn't wish us Merry Christmas and instead said season's greetings, we're horrified at the notion. We think that it means a loss of our, of our rights as a Christian. How dare they secularize Christmas and somehow we're surprised one when an unregenerated person behaves like one. Yeah, when instead we ought to be saying, wait a minute, what, why are we taking this as an opportunity that's right. to talk about the true reason for the season or to understand that that's not emblematic of persecution. You want to talk about persecution. There are people that have died for their faith and no other reason than name Jesus as Lord and Savior. And somebody else's religion or somebody else's government said, I don't like that at all and claimed a life. And it happens all over the world every single day. So we have, I think, a real distorted view of what Christianity looks like. We, we see it through Western colored glasses as opposed to seeing it through the light of the scripture. Well, that's that's because we're always trying to get back to Christendom. We're always trying to get back. And remember, Christendom is just the cultural, national acceptance of Christianity. So we're always trying to get back to Christendom and not Christianity. And we like the comfort that comes from Christendom. We like the prominence, the entitlement, the rights the social status that goes along with Christendom. But I just don't think that God has ever allowed or will ever allow Christianity to remain in a position of that kind of prominence for that long um, because the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. Um, And so revival is different than a return to Christendom. Revival is the uh, changing of hearts, not the changing of the cultural attitude. Like, we want to actually reach human beings, peoples, lives, families, uh, children of families. Um, uh, I, I am not interested in reaching the, uh, uh, the culture in terms of its attitude towards us. Now, now that could be affected by changing absolutely. lives. Absolutely. Now, there's nothing yeah. wrong with wanting yeah. to see those <clears throat> changes, but you have to understand the methodology of how those changes are brought about. It's a byproduct. Yeah, they're it's not, not their point. It's not yeah. legislated. It, listen, as you said before, if 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 you could legislate morality, then keeping of the law would be an easy thing to do. Thereby, we would have not needed Jesus Christ to come and die on a Man, tree. That's right. We would have kept the law. Everything would have been just uh, just quite fine. But yeah. in fact, God recognized you guys. You guys are you're not capable of keeping the law. That's exactly. So right. I'm going to have to provide the final sacrifice for all mankind, for all sin, for all time, and through that vehicle of Jesus Christ and his substitutionary work on the cross, are we capable of then truly being forgiven, reconciled unto the Father, and walking in fellowship with him? Let me ask you this, as our time winds down, this notion of what it means to be a disciple in order to make disciples, what what does that look like? You know, I think that uh, Galatians 5 probably provides the best framework. Uh, in You know, uh, we get to Galatians 5 and we are confronted with two lists. Uh, the first is the works of the flesh. The works of the flesh uh, are things like rivalry, dissension, division, uh, anger, uh, fits of rage, envy, uh, pollute, and, yeah, <laughs> polluted sexuality, um, and uh, and we have enough of that in our country. In fact, it's a hallmark of the way that the culture is interacting with itself online and in person Very right true. now. Very it's true. a hallmark. So I think evangelism looks like the other list right now, uh, which is the fruit of the spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, Uh, And so what I'm trying to tell uh, people who are first-time Christians, new Christians, and they feel absolutely overwhelmed by the idea of evangelism or mission in this current culture and context, I say, I just want you to look at Galatians 5. 
when it comes time to respond to your neighbor, to your coworker, to your family who is politically hypercharged, your does your response look like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness? Oh, and here's the big one: self-control. Because what? I am convinced of right now is that is so foreign right now to responding to people who respond poorly to you, to responding to people who you disagree with. That that is a fruit of only the Holy Spirit that is going to catch people's attention and it's going to give you the opportunity to just say, hey, um, you know, the reason I didn't lose my mind. Uh, is because of the hope that is in me. And I can hear some people right now recoiling at that thought. Yeah. Because your perception is, well, those are all signs of weakness. Mm. And I think, again, that that is purely a deception by the enemy. Uh, calling, you know, <laughs> what is good, bad, what's what's light, dark, and, and that whole list. So we can be people of conviction, we can tell the truth in ways that are inherently indicative of the of the fruit of the spirit rather than the works of the flesh. And so uh, when engaging with the culture, being people of conviction means we don't let them move us. And then when it comes to wanting to move them, it's not about moving them from the outside in. It's about moving them from the inside out. Mm-hmm. I, I got to get to their heart before I can get to their ideology. I got to get to their heart before I can get to the way that they're living their life in some respects. And, and you have to look at the big picture here. I mean, if you're somebody that will be of the perspective that would say, you know, when I really think about it, Jesus voluntarily carrying that cross and that long march towards Gold standing there and allowing himself to be whipped and that crown of thorns fashioned and placed on his head and surrendering himself to die on a cross. What what a tremendous sign of weakness. Well, so uh, in his orientation on the Beatitudes, he says that the meek shall inherit the earth. Now, there's a big difference between weakness and meekness. And that word meekness, just in its most literal interpretation in, in history means something like this to have a sword and to know when to keep it sheathed. Yes, indeed. And to understand that that work on the cross, while perhaps Pilate and the Romans thought it was all a sign of weakness, but remember that the, the continuation of that story is not just his death, because if it ended there, we might be able to find a point of agreement here. But it didn't end there. That, in fact, was the beginning, because on the third day he rose again in fulfillment of the scripture. He overcome, overcame death. He got victory over the grave and provided the means by which all of us might be forgiven and reconciled unto the very creator of the universe. And that's not weakness, my friends. Victory over death, that is one of the most powerful signs that certainly mankind could ever fathom or relate to. And then when you move beyond that to to be even begin with our finite mind to understand the infinite love of God, you think that's a challenge and overwhelming? Well, I would say you're absolutely right it is, but now we see through a, da- a glass darkly, right? Um Pastor, we need to do a series on this. <laughs> this this needs to be sort of, you know, uh, Christianity 101. And, and what a great primer to begin the new year in a change of attitudes, mindsets, hearts, um, focused on, on, on not doing battle against others that we want to prove our point and, and, and be the winner, but rather to be there engaged in spiritual warfare on our knees and then being that that beacon of hope, that that person who is indeed ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within. And I think coming back full circle to maybe asking yourself tonight, where am I in my relationship with Christ? Am I going through the motions? Is a lot of this because I've always done it? 
Or is there a true, vibrant, personal relationship with Jesus Christ? And if you have lost some of that that, that shine of that first love, I think uh, for all of us, incumbent upon the notion of getting back on our knees in front of the Lord, surrendering yet once again, and asking for the very God of the heavens and creator of the universe to not only live in us, but to love through us so that we can truly understand what it means to not only be disciples, but to be makers of disciples as well. Um, I'm going to suspect that this conversation is not ending here while it will for the moment we're going to put a uh, you know kind of fold the 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 corner of the book page over or, or put a little stop in this I'd, I'd love to have you back again because i think we need to go deeper and further i'd love to come back uh, psalm 43 5 says why am i so discouraged O lord so despondent so whether that's about our country or the state of your home the, t- the text goes on and says, put your hope in God and you will praise him again. Amen. If you like the uh, style of theology of Pastor Alan Coleman, maybe you're new to the Bay Area looking for a church home, check him out. Again, um, he's, he's senior pastor at Bay Hills Church of Richmond. You can find more information available on the web at bayhills.net. That's bayhills.net. I want to thank again Pastor Alan Coleman for taking the, the drive to be in here today and <laughs> fighting the traffic, the commute, and uh, look forward to further dialogue. My privilege and pleasure, Craig. Hey, if you really enjoyed this, by the way, check out the podcast. It will be available tonight after 7 o'clock. Grab a hold of it and share it with your friends and family and listen to it again. All right. Time out. Back with more. The second hour of Lifeline continue slogging through this Tuesday, January the 16th, right after this. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.